Good morning. This morning we're going to look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 6. And I'm going to read the first 15 verses. Hope you have your Bible, whether it's on your smartphone or you're actually holding the book. Hope you'll read along with me. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come. And let us meet together at Hakafir. <laughs> I've not had that trouble in a while. Hakafarim <laughs> in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. I wish I could get that kind of response on email. I sent them four times, and I'm waiting for one reply. (laughs) In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And... You have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. That's the prophetic report. There's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports, and the king that he's talking about is Artaxerxes I. Now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. 
They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. I uh, had to grow up fast uh, as a pastor. I was uh, 30 when I accepted the responsibility of being the pastor of a church in San Francisco. And I had to grow up fast. Um, Anyone grows up fast when they accept responsibility for others. Because when you accept responsibility for others, or you are accountable for others, And I don't know if you think of pastors that way, but that's the way the New Testament speaks of pastors. They're accountable for the lives of the people that they shepherd. And when you are accountable and responsible to boot, I mean, being accountable is one thing. That doesn't make you responsible, but if you're responsible, you take that responsibility, that accountability, that that task very, very seriously. I was a very shy and insecure guy. Um, I had the good fortune. I think God led me. I know God led me, but I didn't see it that way. I just thought, man, um, I'm glad I decided to go to that church. And uh, I entered the intern program where I got a great deal of training. And before I took that pastorate, I even... uh, had a responsibility in Turlock at a church, St. John's United Presbyterian Assyrian Church, where I uh, spoke to the young adults who were all older than me. (laughs) By the way, St. John's United Assyrian Church was occupied by Assyrians from Assyria, which that their ancient territory straddled Iran and Iraq. And so many had fled when the Shah was overthrown. Many had worked their way through Russia. Um, Really, the young of the church were 50 and above, and I was under 30, so that was a wonderful learning experience. But I, uh, I was shy and insecure, and I was growing through the responsibilities that I was given as an intern. And um, uh, my pastor, Bill Yeager, 
uh, was one that I was directly responsible for, and he was a very strong leader. He was a wonderful man, and a true man of God, as I grew to learn. At first, um, when I entered the intern program, I just, I went in, I, I had a, after I got through all the gates, so to speak, um, preliminary reviews and approvals, I had to sit down in front of Pastor Yeager, which to me was like Dorothy, the tin man, the lion, the straw man, as they were walking down that hall to the Wizard of Oz, you know. And he loomed in that desk, uh, and I was, I was, I was trying to look composed, but I was sweating, you know. I needed more than dial uh, in his presence. Uh, that was an underarm deodorant, which probably dates me again. But at any rate, uh, at one point, uh, he, he, well, he says, uh, where do you think God's leading you into ministry? I said, youth ministry, because I was young, you know. I thought that would be my thing. I could relate there, et cetera, you know, my pea brain. And he says, uh, okay, all right, well, we'll probably start you there. He says, but I think you're supposed to be a pastor. And I laughed spontaneously. I thought that was, I mean, then I, then I tried to swallow it, you know, but I, it was just this kind of, are you kidding me? And uh, he says, no, I, I do. And then he said, but you're going to have to toughen up. And see, I was too afraid to ask him what that meant. I mean, what do you mean, you know, toughen up? You don't think I'm tough enough? He says, no, you're, but he did say, he says, you're going to have to toughen up. So I just kind of carried that under my arm when I left the office, and it's been on my heart a lot since. But I've since learned in ministry why you have to be tough. It's because ministry is tough. Responsibility is tough. Serving others is tough. It's, it's not as easy as you might think. It's not always appreciated. And you have to persist, you have to continue, you have to be true, you have to remain faithful. Uh, whether you're in, as we sang, you're in the valley or the highland. So I learned simple things like major on the majors. Don't, don't major on minor things. Major on the majors. I used to... I adopted an expression, be large-minded and large-hearted. Um, all those things to me reflect the very grace that God has already shown me, and it is at the heart of the gospel. I'm not tough. By the way, Bill Yeager worked, <laughs> this is so odd to even put it this way, but he worked for me when I was with Western Seminary, which was so strange. And, and when, when I would take him up to Oregon for uh, meetings that I were being held in Portland at our parent campus, he, I, you know, I'd go with him, room with him and stuff. And uh, in meetings, I'd say, this is Pastor Yeager. And he'd go, John, you, you gotta call me Bill like we're buddies or something. I esteemed him so highly. I remember Duel Monday was a cartoonist for Disney. 
and a longtime friend of Pastor Yeager's. And at staff meetings, sometimes Bill, who was a gunner during a uh, tail gunner on a kind of a bombardier sort of plane, uh, he, when I say he was tough, he, he was tough. And he was from that builder generation. And so in staff meetings, uh, you didn't want to get on his bad side. But he was always, he was always, if he got upset, it was for the sake of the gospel, not because of his ego. Uh, but Duel Monday did a cartoon of people leaving. It showed these characters, you know, very Disney-ish kind of cartoon, if you can picture it. They're leaving the office. They're walking out the door into the hall, and there's a sign that says staff meeting. And they got big bites out of their behinds because that was Bill in staff meeting. But I'm not tough like that. Uh, I've learned not to be tough, but to be principled. And when Bill was here at Grace, one day he stopped me at the office and he said, you know, and this was unsolicited, I didn't see it coming, he says, you know, you're tough. He said, you're tougher than me. I don't know about that. I don't believe that's really true, but that was the highest compliment I could have ever been paid coming from Bill Yeager, a man who I eulogized at his funeral and that I uh, owe so much. But you see, I'm telling you all this, not to waste time, but to tell you that I really believe in the principles the principles that guide my life, that guide ministry, that guide our lives are all found in Jesus Christ and in the gospel. A principle is a fundamental truth or a firmly held truth that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior or for a chain of reasoning. That's your dictionary definition. But it's a good one. In simple words, this is what a principle is. You make first things first. You recognize what comes first, what should be first, and you make it first in your life. And that's called identifying priorities. Identifying priorities. What is a priority, you may ask? A priority is making a first thing first. That's my high ground. In, it's when you, when you see a thing, and that thing is seen as more important than another thing, and you make the thing that's more important mainly important to you, that's a priority. For example, at 19, I received Jesus Christ, and I made Jesus first in my life. Sometimes that's a real battle, but it's an important one. The fact that you have to battle with yourself to keep Jesus first in your life may bother you. Why, am, why do I have to fight to do this? Because your selfishness, <laughs> the importance of me is always an opponent when it comes to Jesus. 
And you'll never have the strength to be as principled as you ought to be unless Jesus becomes number one, unless he becomes first. And so when Jesus became first, then his word became first. And that's when I developed this love for reading the Bible and listening to it and hearing God speak to me because his word was louder and more important than anybody else's word. So that became a priority. And my love for God became important because of his great love for me. And then you might think this odd, but I'm going through some things chronologically. Tithing became very important to me. I remember as a young man when my mother, I was 19, my mother was in the hospital. She had brain cancer. My sister was living with my grandparents at that time. For a stretch of time, I lived alone in the house that my parents had built. And that's when I came to Christ during that time. And I can remember budgeting. I can remember working those things out. I can remember thinking, I'm going to give this to you, Lord. Shelly and I do the online giving thing. Um, in my head, that's, that's great. But in my heart, I, I'm not, don't get me wrong, just get my point, okay? I like actually giving to the Lord, holding it in my hand. Shelly would, would take it and give it to me on those Sundays. We'd take turns. And that meant so much to me. It still means a lot to me but I have to find other ways to make it concrete in my heart because giving unto the Lord is very important. I don't believe you could have somebody on the pastoral staff who is not committed. Can you really say God is Lord of your life if you're not giving to him? If you're not recognizing his giving to me and to you and out of that saying, Lord, I want to return this. If I'm not able to really trust him with my finances, really, we say, put your money where your mouth is. We know exactly what that means. And it tells us a lot when our money is more important to us than is our relationship with God. I will say that Shelley and I, because when when I met her, she was already a tither, just like I was. By the way, we have a chance this month with our first fruits offering to really do something concrete and take a major step toward our property. I hope you will prayerfully consider this because the beauty of this thing is that we are worshiping the Lord in this. We're putting our faith in him as we take this step, a, a really tangible, real step together. Just like in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, the families and the people lined up shoulder to shoulder. It's a beautiful chapter if you haven't read it, as they worked on the wall. This is a chain in which we can give unto the Lord something special. And I, I'm telling you from my heart, we are digging deep in our household to do something special unto the Lord for this and take this concrete step toward moving toward our property. 
And uh, this will be something that uh, we will be able to uh, use and begin to learn more about and use even as we worship the Lord here before we take that step to move there. But tithing has been very, very important in our family over the last years. And I, I don't even understand sometimes how, how God provided for us. Um, but that's another story. Um, but it is an amazing one to me. Uh, and then, of course, Shelley is a priority. When I met Shelley and God laid it on my heart to ask her to be my life partner, and we worked through all the questions, and I wanted her really, really know. I didn't even know what I was asking her to get into as my, as my life love and partner in, in ministry, but I, I knew that I had to put the Lord first, and, and for me, that meant being involved full-time in, in ministry in his name. And she's accepted that responsibility and given up things. She could have been a doctor. Uh, if you've gotten to know her, she's so bright and smart and scientific, and um, she takes care of me. Boy, that tells you everything right there. So uh, the, these are priorities. And that's what we see in Nehemiah. And your priorities become your high ground. It was interesting, the song about highlands, because really that's what I'm talking about this morning. Nehemiah 6 shows Nehemiah taking the high ground again and again with each challenge we see. And he is making first things first. He sets his eyes on what comes first and figures out how to get there or stay there. He figures out how to climb to where he needs to be and how to climb wisely. But he gets his eyes on what needs to be first. And we can do that too. I'm putting it in the plainest language I know. Forge priorities in your life. First things that come first. And by the way, I call those priorities the high ground because that is the elevation of advantage. So I want to encourage us to take the high ground and make first things first. And I want us to see in Nehemiah what's important, What's true and what's right are priorities. Something important comes first. Something true comes first. And something right comes first. Now that seems like a no-brainer, but you, if you look around and just think about it, I don't know why you would unless I prod you, but you're going to find that things that are important are not always first. Oftentimes, important things are ignored, left to the last minute. There's a word uh, that we use, procrastination, which has to do, you don't use that word with things that don't matter. You use it with things that are important because you're neglecting it. You're ignoring it. You're not putting an important thing first or something that's true. So how many of us would all subscribe? I would subscribe 
to the truth of God as my creator and my Lord and Savior through Jesus Christ. But yet sometimes I ignore him. Sometimes I disregard him. Sometimes I think incorrectly about him. Those are cases where I'm taking truth and it is not a conviction for me. And I need to return to that and make that first. And the same thing with things that are right. Things that are important, true, and right, we will see as priorities for Nehemiah. And when Nehemiah's adversaries and opponents, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and others, when they go low, Nehemiah goes high. Time and again, time and again. What helps us go high? Focusing on what's important, what's true, and what's right. Something important comes first in verses 1 through 4. He says, I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop? See, he knows what's important. The work must go on. Charles E. Hummel, a name you probably don't recognize, but in, in the 80s, he wrote a little book, the, the Tyranny of the Urgent. And I remember reading that. And he said in there, your greatest danger is letting the urgent things crowd out the important things. Nehemiah is saying, my work is important. You're obviously confronting me with something really urgent time and again you've got to come down and meet us leave your work come and do this come and do this do it right now and nehemiah says i'm not going to let the urgent tyrannize me priorities are important doris lessing a name you may not know she was a british novelist she was the oldest recipient of the nobel prize for literature maybe the, the oldest recipient of any Nobel Prize. But at any rate, she said, it is the mark of great people to treat trifles as trifles and important matters as important. Ray Kroc, founder of McDonald's, once a reporter asked Ray Kroc his order of priorities. He said, I believe in God, my family, and then McDonald's. And then he quipped, when I get to the office, I reverse the order. Well, I want to be charitable, uh, especially to the uh, memory of Mr. Kroc. I imagine, I, I kind of know what he probably meant when he said that. But Nehemiah clearly took God with him everywhere. God was first in every situation, especially in his troubles. He didn't, he didn't turn away from God. He turned to God again and again and again. But I want to give you a quick example of a way that he really uh, just, it's been on my heart the last two to three weeks, ever since I read it in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 15. And if you haven't read chapter 5, I encourage you to read it. But basically, uh, just before verse 15, Nehemiah says, all of the governors before me 
handled things this way. And the way they handled them are the way people in power often are portrayed. And it's not altogether unfamiliar to us that those in power take advantage of the little people and they get a little richer. They profit from their power. And Nehemiah says, I don't do it that way. And why wouldn't he do it the way all of his predecessors had? He says, I won't take advantage of all the privileges that come with being a governor. In fact, Nehemiah worked side by side with the people. Nehemiah, it is, he says, I never owned any property. In other words, if you had property, you had an investment in the wall, and yet he was invested in the wall without the property ownership. Why was that? He tells us in verse 15, it's not the only place. He says, because of my fear of God. I love that. God was more important. I knew God didn't want me taking advantage. I knew God didn't want me living off the you know, privileges that were built on the backs of the little people. I work side by side with the people because I fear God. He's my Lord. So everyone looks up to Nehemiah, and because Nehemiah looks up to God, Nehemiah is just one of the people. But he has a responsibility that is greater than the responsibilities of the people. See, I am the senior pastor. At one time, it was because I was the top dog that they called me senior pastor. But now, it's just because I'm old. (laughs) But seriously, I'm no better than any of the other pastors. I just have higher responsibilities. Does that make sense to you? And it's those responsibilities that I hold before the Lord. And I don't expect others to do them for me. And if I do them well, it helps those that I'm responsible to care for. This is true of of us in all kinds of areas of our lives. We have responsibilities that are defined by our accountability whether it's with, through marriage, the job, becoming a parent, being a student, being a member of a team, being a, an owner who has responsibility over workers. I wish we all could know that, that expression when he says in verse 15, because I fear the Lord. I fear God. Now, what does fear mean? Just a little peek into my past. Uh, When I was, just before I came to Christ, um, I was in a a house on Leonard Street in Modesto at a a small party, a small gathering. And uh, anyway, it was uh, the the site of a, a drug raid. And fortunately, um, I was not arrested that night. But I remember the fear I experienced. 
first, I thought it was just some other party-goers coming in because the first officer in the room, after a knock on the door, was a plainclothes policeman until I caught his badge on his, on his hip. He was a detective and, and a pistol on his other hip, other side. And, uh, and then at that same moment, through the doors busted open, came uniformed police officers, and I just... I, I mean, I just started to get up off the couch that I was sitting on when a uniformed police officer took a shotgun and put it right in my face. I knew fear. I felt fear. I wasn't thinking about anything else. Not one thing was on my mind but that shotgun. Fear does that. Fear takes priority. Fear becomes number one. Fear can swallow up every interest in your life and your heart. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, it's not an emotional fear. It's a matter of priority. We generate that because respect warrants it. Does that make sense? It's something we have to work on. We don't want to be chilled into it or or frightened into it at gunpoint, we want to realize it's his due to give him that honor and priority in our lives. God gave Nehemiah an important work, and that work came first to Nehemiah because he had a fear of God. C.S. Lewis said Christianity of false is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. At the end of a letter that he wrote, he said this, when I have learnt to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving toward the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. And then he closed with this. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased when we put God first. What's important? more important than your fears? What's more important than God? Put God first, and those things will actually find their proper importance and flourish. In verse 9, he said, they're, not try they're trying to frighten us. When you're frightened, everything else is forgotten. Life grinds to a halt with fear and its discouragement. You'll not know fear like you know fear when, when you experience a threat or jeopardy. How many of you are suffering from fear on a daily, if not weekly, basis because of the news, because of politics, because of what you think is happening to our country, because of the weather? Those are some pretty big things that are out of your control. Honestly, not to me. I don't need to know. I got an idea. Seriously, weigh that. 
What's it result in? You may not think of it as fear, but anger, frustration. Some of it is becoming a bitterness. And you find that you're touchy and out of sorts. Even as a follower of Christ, you're on edge, biting, barking. That's because of fear, an improper fear. Replace that fear with the fear of the Lord. Give him control. Turn those things over to him and focus on things you can do something about. That's what Nehemiah did here. Sure, those, how frightening are some of these things that they're all spreading this rumor and they're going to send a report to Artaxerxes that Nehemiah is going to go rogue with this people. He's building the wall to stage a coup. He's going to take this fiefdom and become a minor ruler against Artaxerxes, which is why the whole place was destroyed in the first place by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Well, I better get out there and meet with them quick and try to solve this. No, he didn't do that. How was it he persisted? And what does he do? He says, Lord, you take over. I can't do anything about that. You handle it. I commit them to you. But you gave me a work. It's a priority for me. And I'm going to put my elbow to the wheel or whatever it is we say and keep on working on what you called me to do. Now, O oh God, he says in verse 9, strengthen my hands. I have important work to do. It's your work. Second, something true comes first. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you, you say have been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind, for they all wanted to frighten us. See, Sam Ballot's letter was a plausible explanation, but it wasn't the truth. Are we frightened by plausible explanations that we know are untrue, but because they're plausible and we know others will... Let me tell you, in the pastorate, I've been called all kinds of stuff. And these words that Nehemiah says, no such things as you say have been done. But that doesn't stop the rumor mill. These are the people that don't come to you and say, why did you do that? Could you explain yourself? Or something like that. Because I care about our relationship. See, we build relationships of any worth on truth. Truth and transparency and honesty. And that's what I have been doing here at Grace for up to almost, it'll be 20 years, December 5th. I can't believe that. So much fun. Where did the time go? But I'm trying to bring some of these things home to help us realize you may know this in your workplace or at school or in your neighborhood or with members of your family where untruths, falsehoods are crafted and shared about one another and you cannot just react to that. You've got to move in directions of importance and truth as God would have you. 
like Nehemiah did. If what's important is also something that's true, that's really a championship tag team. You know, it's interesting is uh, when I told you about that uh, drug raid was that um, it was a very frightening experience and it was very humiliating because uh, I asked to use a bathroom and if any of you have a creative imagination, you know what happens if you're suspected of harboring or breaking the law with drugs, you want to go to the bathroom, they have to do a thorough body search. And um, you know what's interesting is with all that fear, once it was over, um, you would think I would have had this higher respect for the law but I didn't. I mean, I didn't want to get caught. I didn't want to get busted. Um, I actually found myself thinking, I'll have to be smarter next time, cleverer. Isn't that the way we work sometimes? But listen, there, I'm telling you this not to embarrass myself or change your opinion of me, even though it's years old, before Christ but I really want to teach you something. See, I didn't have respect. I had that fear, but that fear did not also carry with it a high degree of respect. That's the kind of fear we're talking about when we talk about the fear of the Lord. That's the kind of fear and respect that sets priorities. Not only something important, something first, true, but also something right. In verses 10 through 14, he says in verses 11 through 13, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? This is the most interesting thing I've ever read in the book of Nehemiah, maybe in the whole of the Bible. Because, you see, it's evident in these verses that I just mentioned, verses 10 through 14 of chapter 6, that there were a number of prophets that were busy, you know, that God was speaking through, or they were professing to speak for God. Um, there's even a woman prophetess mentioned, and Shemaiah, he shuts himself up in his house. It, it, he's restrained, it says in the Hebrew, and it, we take that to mean that he's enacting something symbolic. He's symbolizing his fear of the dangers of the enemies, that they're going to kill him. He, Nehemiah goes to visit him, which shows they have something of a friendly relationship. We don't know much more about Shemaiah. And, but in that conversation, Nehemiah detects when Shemaiah... Um, offers a solution to their fear or the frightening threats against them. He says, let's take refuge in the temple. And immediately, that's, that's a red flag for Nehemiah because he's a layman. That is, he's not a priest. He's not able to live or to find, you know, refuge there. He doesn't qualify any a red light goes on, and he realized that's not wrong. In fact, he says in these verses, if I put it in my own words, 
I can't run, it's wrong. I can't enter the table, temple, it's wrong. I'm not a priest. I can't save myself, it's wrong. It will discredit me and God. And Nehemiah prays, verse 14, and asks God to take care of them. In other words, I have no control over them. I have control over me. I can do what's right. I can do what's right. That's all I can do. But you know what's right, Nehemiah says? What's right is what God's already called me to do. I have great confidence that that's what I should be doing. You and I, in following Jesus, we have a ton that we can be doing that is relevant to every facet and angle of our lives. When he says, love your enemies, for example, that's, well, I wish I had an enemy so I could love him. Oh, come on. <laughs> Don't have any enemies. So. <laughs> That's why I try to be nice to everybody. <laughs> Will you stand with me? Verse 15 says, they completed the wall in 52 days. Do you know how many Sundays there are in a year? 52. What if you were to dedicate those 52 days or just any 52 days to the Lord. That's what they were doing. What do you think you could build? What do you think God could build in you in 52 days dedicated to him? Think about it. Be a Nehemiah. I love this guy. He is a cool man. We should all admire him and walk in his footsteps. We'll walk closer to God and we'll find ourselves in the footprints of Jesus. I'm gonna pray for us, but I wanna remind you, if you wanna pray with me or pastoral staff, leaders or spouses, we're gonna be up here after I say amen and we invite you to come. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you how robust is the spirit of your word because your spirit carries it to us, brings it to us. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we live and breathe and have our being. We praise you in his name. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you.